ReachMD XM160 now presents Second Opinion Live with hosts Dr. Smat Bernholtz and Michael Greenberg. Welcome to Second Opinion Live on ReachMD Radio XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. And I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg. We're live, and we've got the best show ever for you today. Ever! Ever. If you want to join in the conversation, you can on the phone, on the web, or tweet us on Twitter. And as usual, we're covering all kinds of fascinating topics. That is right. We've got a lot of great stuff for you today. We'll be talking to Dr. Ram Gordon. Dr. Gordon is a cardiologist who wrote a column published in JAMA last month that'll resonate with you. It's about patients who can become your friends and where the lines should be drawn. Dr. Gordon is going to tell us the story of one patient who practically redefined the successful doctor-patient relationship. If you want to join us in on the conversation, call in or email. Our number is 888-MD1-REACH. That's 888-631-7322. And our email, sol at reachmd.com. Or hit us on the web at Facebook or Twitter. Don't hit us. And we're going to talk about another special relationship, the one between you, the government, and donuts. Donuts. That's right, donuts. Plus, we'll tell you about a man who infected himself with a virus you wouldn't think possible. Mm. And in other news, how can body art suddenly become a good thing for people with diabetes? We'll tell you all about that and many more things. Many more things. And don't forget about the latest ReachMD poll, all about online communication tools, how to communicate with your patients anywhere. You don't even have to be in the same room. That is a totally messed up doctor-patient relationship. <laughs> we will see. It's all coming up on this week's Second Opinion Live. Our number again, 888-MD1-REACH. Give us a call. But first up, our regular feature, Curious Headlines. Well, Matt, there were headlines last week about a new virus, and you'll be surprised how this one spread. <laughs> surprised. Like, it's, is that sneezing or maybe a bowl of cashews everybody grabs from? Absolutely not. <laughs> so it's not mosquitoes. What about robot mosquitoes? Then? No, no, no. Actually, it's a computer virus. The curious headline literally reads, man infects himself with a computer virus. Oh, the patient is Mark Gasson, who's a researcher at the University of Reading in the UK. He and his team created a little malicious computer code, put it in a computer chip, and implanted it in Dr. Gasson's hand. The chip itself was used as a type of implanted key to open electronic door locks without needing to swipe a card. So when the door scanned the chip, the virus was spread wirelessly. I like that idea. So he became a vector for the computer virus? Well, exactly. It didn't affect his health directly, but the experiment does help show how people with medical implants can become vulnerable to computer these viruses. That's amazing. I think, I mean, I'm thinking pacemakers for starters. Just the tip of the iceberg. You could turn somebody's pacemaker off with this. Wow. Yeah, there's so many different ways. Well, here's another futuristic headline that's been in the news. Researchers, I, lo I love futuristic headlines. I love futuristic stuff. And researchers at the most futuristic institution, MIT, are working on a tattoo that they claim could one day allow diabetics to constantly monitor blood sugar levels without equipment or devices. A blood sugar tattoo? Wow. I believe in your robot mosquito idea before I believed in this one. Yeah, well, it's in the works. I kid you not. These tattoos apparently involve injected particles of ink designed to release different wavelengths of light in response to different concentrations of blood glucose. Say that about six times fast. Blood glucose. And a monitor would get worn on top of the tattoo to interpret the changes. What a shame. Getting a tattoo and keeping it covered up. I want our listeners to know that I have your face tattooed on my bicep, and it changes to purple every time I eat a donut. <laughs> well, you and five others. Donuts, that. yeah. The technology is still years away. So maybe by then they'll have a way to show them off. I don't know. And you'll think this is pretty cool, actually. The ink, as they call it, is actually made up of minuscule carbon tubes that emit light when glucose levels change. 
And the researchers say that they expect each tattoo's ink to last about, I don't know, six months. That's what my tattoo of you is made up of. (laughs) (laughs) Again, you and six or five others. Now, just think about the impact that that kind of implanted continuous monitoring could have for diabetic patients. No, seriously, this is awesome. No daily finger sticking, no major blood sugar fluctuations, and a picture of you on your arm. That would be great. triple threat. It's going to be fantastic if it works, if it's years (laughs) away. All right, we've got uh, one more story about futuristic gadgets. This one hit the newspapers after it was announced at the recent American Society of Clinical Oncology meeting. It's a medical device for treating brain tumors, specifically glioblastomas. The device is getting billed as an electric helmet, but it's really a network of electrodes that patients wear on their head for about 20 hours a day. The device apparently uses faint electric fields to disrupt cancer cell division without affecting normal cells, as they're claiming. And listen, I know how ridiculous this must sound to a lot of our listeners right now, but the research behind this thing actually looks pretty decent. Remember the story we did about the bicycle helmets a while ago not really helping people? Maybe they should wear this on their bicycle. But seriously, Matt, research this is a serious story. Researchers from Sloan Kettering led a study following 237 very, very sick patients with recurrent brain tumors averaging four centimeters in diameter. And after excluding the patients who obviously died or dropped out of the trial before completing the first round of treatment, they found patients lived an extra month and a half, or 7.8 months with the device, compared to 6.1 months on chemo and and Avastin. Hmm. So an extra month and change with none of the chemo side effects. Yeah, exactly. But the patients kept a normal routine. They had to shave their heads twice a week to wear the helmet. What's wrong with being bald? Look at me. But I take that over losing my hair to chemo. Hmm. The device isn't approved in the U.S. yet, but it's in practice over in Europe now. Just don't expect insurance here or there to pick up the ten dollars to $15,000 per month price tag. But I would pay that much to do another show with you. <laughs> you would, too, I think. Or at least get another tattoo on your other bicep. Well, it is definitely exciting stuff. Why don't we shift gears, though, and talk about patient communication with some current tools out there. It's the topic of this week's ReachMD poll online tools that help us provide care for our patients anywhere. Anywhere, as in somewhere else. That sounds like emailing patients. I just hope we're not talking about using that in place of seeing patients because that won't fly with most of us. Yeah, not at all. But we are talking about email to some extent, like using it so that patients can get in touch with us for questions on medications and stuff along those lines. Okay, okay, man. Is this more of this health 2.0 stuff you've been talking about? (laughs) Absolutely. We got in touch with healthcare futurist Matthew Hold again, and he's pushing that these tools like email, online test results, appointment scheduling, and so on, are coming to every practice soon. What we're talking about then is gearing toward using video chats and text messages in practice. This is so apropos because the new iPhone is being being released this month, and Mm -hmm. you you actually get real-time video. I think email messages are dangerous, but I would see talking to my doctor on my iPhone where I can actually see his or her face. Well, you show me clips of it. I mean, as long as the the bit rate is good, the transfer is good, I mean, it Mm. looks amazing in terms of what you can see. I always look at those video phones and think that when you're looking at videos of each other, it's extremely choppy. That's the template that we all remember. But these looked very, very smooth. It's like you could really hold a teleconference. Yeah, and you got to be dressed nicely to be on that phone, you know. Yeah, no, I'm right with you there. But it will be interesting. Let's see uh, what our listeners think. Head over to reachmd.com slash poll. Listen to Matthew Holt talking about the online communication landscape in healthcare. And then tell us, do you use online tools to communicate with your patients? And if so, does it help deliver better care, save you time, or just introduce new communication problems? Uh, we want to hear from you, so let us know what you think, and we'll tell you what we think, too. I'll tell you what I think, personally. I think that the day is coming 
when there will be more electronic communications with patients. And I think it's so very, very important to point out the dangers of certain levels of communication. Emails are the most dangerous. Qualified dangerous, do you mean in terms of misinterpretation? Do you mean no, in no, terms misinterpretation, of... not knowing what somebody's really saying. You read emails from people and you don't get the intonation, you don't get the facial expressions, you don't get the meta communication. And I've misread emails very, very easily, thinking somebody was angry or upset when they were really making a joke. And I've done mm-hmm. that myself. Here at the station once, when I sent an email a long time ago that a... Oh, that got you in hot water. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. When I suggested that Dr. Kevorkian was going to come on board and be our producer. Well, you know, even caps uh, on an email can send a completely different message than you yeah. intended. So I totally agree with So you'll have to buy an iPhone to communicate with me. <laughs> so from the discussion of online patient communication, why don't we welcome our guest, Dr. Ram Gordon, to talk about some remarkable offline communication between himself and a patient. Dr. Gordon is a cardiologist at Chestnut Hill Cardiology in Flowertown, Pennsylvania. Last they month, make donuts there in Flowertown. They may or may not. Last month, Dr. Gordon published an essay in the Journal of the American Medical Association's Peace of My Mind column. And in the article, he tells the story of one of his first patients in private practice, a man who inspired him to reconsider what defines the doctor-patient relationship. It's our pleasure to have him join us and share the story today. Dr. Gordon, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks, guys. Great to be on. Is it Ram or Ram? It's Ram. Okay, Ram. I think it was a beautiful article. I read it a couple times. But let's bring our listeners up to speed. Tell tell us about what happened with you and this patient and and his letters. Oh, absolutely. So basically, I was just a couple months out of... uh, out of fellowship and uh, a little bit nervous, uh, very, very sort of formal with my patients, uh, very much wanting to prove that I knew what I was doing. Uh, I looked pretty young, so that was sort of something I had to overcome, too. Heard a few patients call me Doogie Hauser, um, and I met this guy, and he was 82 years old, and just sort of came in with dizziness and very nicely dressed older guy, uh, just, a, just, a, just got a nice sense of him. And uh, his blood pressure was high, and we sort of played with that. And I did some, you know, some cardiology things on him, like a stress test. Um, and when his stress test was abnormal, I told him, you know, you need, to, uh, you need to have a cardiac catheterization. And he said, you know what, Dr. Gordon, I'm going to think about that. And a few days later, I got this beautiful calligraphy uh, pen-written, handwritten note from him. Uh, that was really beautiful. I don't know if you want me to read uh, what he wrote or some of what he wrote. It was just beautifully written um, and, and very, uh, very clear, uh, and basically the gist of it was uh, he, he didn't really want the test. He said, you know, I, I really want to be a good patient. I, I like you. I trust you. Uh, but I really feel good about what I, I think as well, and, and I, I really don't want to go through with this. And uh, this letter was really touching, um, and uh, it was written with a lot of eloquence, and um, and uh, it started a really beautiful friendship with this guy. Were you initially touched or frustrated by that initial call that, of all things, essentially started the relationship? Right. It, you know, most patients, I sort of would have said, well, you know, the, I sort of would maybe would have written this guy off a little bit that he didn't, you know, I, again, I, I was trying to prove myself. He didn't want to listen to me. Um, uh, and, uh, but, but the letter was something that was so unique that I'd never gotten before. Uh, that, that I was intrigued, I think, more than any, anything, and uh, sort of uh, create a mutual uh, uh, respect with the guy. 
Well, this started a whole cascade of letters between you and this gentleman throughout that, your relationship. Is that correct? That's right. That's right. Uh, often uh, after he would see me, he would write me a really beautiful letter about how much the interaction had meant with him, uh, even the small uh, discussions that we had. Uh, and a lot of them sort of drifted toward uh, philosophy and, and life and family um, would really uh, uh, it sort of affect and touch both of us. And he would sort of write me a nice summary letter uh, afterwards uh, uh, ab- about the uh, interaction. Um, and I'll have to admit, the first few letters I sort of got and, and tossed aside. And after about uh, four or five months of, of knowing him, I-, I started keeping his letters. So what did this gentleman teach you or help you to do for the rest of your patients who you weren't so close to? I think it was a fascinating relationship. Well, you know, it was early on in my career. Uh, I think the most important thing is he taught me uh, to listen, uh, not to interrupt too quickly, and to really um, uh, listen to what patients have to say, to try to um, you know, sort of get to know my patients more in depth, try to get to know their backgrounds better. Um, and also what I discovered is the better I got to know him, uh, the better a patient he became. In other words, he, he sort of got to know me a little bit better, trusted me a little more, and we sort of established a really, a really uh, cordial uh, patient-doctor relationship that, that was really nice. Well, why don't you tell us uh, about that process, because I'm sure you were conflicted at first, at least for a little while, about where you needed to draw the line, and this was testing the barrier of that. I mean, can you tell us about how you considered that over time. Absolutely. I mean, as you guys know, you know, one of the things that we're taught in medical school is is don't get too close to patients. Uh, Don't give up too much of yourself. Uh, We need to, we we need to feel for our patients. We don't need to feel with our patients. Um, Don't share too much with our patients, that kind of stuff. Um, And as I, as I started to get uh, closer to this patient and, and see his name on my uh, you know, my, uh, my appointment list and, and look forward to our uh, interactions, I, I started feeling conflicted about um, whether, one, I was treating him differently from other patients, but also how much was it appropriate for me to give of myself and how was it affecting my care of the patient. Uh, and, and those conflicts really did arise in me. I threw that out a long time ago in my practice about not getting close to patients. And some you will and some you won't. Mm-hmm. But the ones you get close to will teach you the most about yourself, I believe, and help you become a better doctor in the future. Have you become a better doctor because of this relationship? Uh, there's absolutely no question that uh, this guy changed the way I, I look at what I do for a living and also changed the way not only I dealt with him as a patient, but also the way I deal with uh, I can't say every patient, but but a lot of patients that come into my office. Well, how did you reconcile with that fear that a lot of us will have about losing our objectivity because of a friendship? I mean, I'm recalling studies that were done several years ago that showed less aggressive care, for instance, by doctors who treated family or friends who were hospitalized. And I wonder if you kind of looked at this and thought, you know, am I losing my objectivity? Is it going to make my standard of care change? I did think that. And what I would try to do is when he would walk in, after the sort of very warm hello, um, uh, I'd sort of really work the first five or ten minutes of the, of the appointment on the cardiac issues. I would say, well, your blood pressure is too high. I reviewed your cholesterol. Um, how are you feeling? You know, I would go through all the important things first uh, and make my decisions at that point, and then I would let myself go a little bit. And then I would, we would sort of talk about 
how's your family, what's new, what are your challenges, what do you think about, you know, politics or the arts or whatever we were talking about. But I would try to reserve the first 10 minutes of that appointment for for the medicine, the real thing. Uh, and he sort of understood that. And I sort of pushed that so that our appointments weren't simply social encounters. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Second Opinion Live on ReachMD XM160. I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg alongside Dr. Matt Bernholtz. Find us on Twitter at ReachMD or call us by phone, 888-MD1-REACH. We're talking with Dr. Ram Gordon, a cardiologist in Flowertown, Pennsylvania. I love that name. And contribute to the, the Peace of My Mind column in the May 12th issue of JAMA. Okay. I have to say, Dr. Gordon, one thing that was particularly inspiring to me when you talk about how you designed your encounters with these patients, especially Mr. M in this case, mm-hmm. how you you set about doing an office meet where he came in and you discussed his medical issues for about 10 minutes, and then you spent 40 minutes in one particular encounter talking about yourself because he was so interested in learning more about you. And so you planned around that, which right. is something that is very, very rare, I would think, among many practitioners in terms of how much time they feel they can allot to their patient encounters. Absolutely. And it was it was really the first and only time I've done that where he, at one point he asked, he said, I want to know about you. I want to know about your family, your motivations, why you became a doctor, your history. Um, and uh, as I wrote, I, I felt very uncomfortable with this. Uh, but he was an extraordinarily uh, insightful and interesting uh, man. He, he was truly a special patient. And so I did it. And I really, I never looked back. I never regretted it. And uh, it brought us even closer for the last couple years of our uh, of our uh, relationship. Well, the one thing I was the most struck with in reading the entire article was the fact that at the end of a patient visit, that you as the physician can actually feel better about yourself. That was intimated in there. If you found other patients that when you get done with a visit, there's been that kind of intimacy, but professional intimacy, that you actually feel good about this visit. Without question. I mean, there are certainly many other patients I've had who, who when I see their name, I get very excited before I knock on the door and walk in. Um, again, I'm, I'm a pretty, I, I'm, I'm a young doc, and uh, you know, I, I have what I call my, my cadre of patient grandmothers who give me a hug and, and ask me how I'm doing, and, and I, I very much enjoy the fact that I take care of them and am keeping them around for their families and their grandkids and maybe great-grandchildren. Well, listen, I'm a middle-aged doc. I'm <laughs> 60, and I still have the same experiences. And I even have grandmothers. Only my grandmothers are 96-year-old patients now. Right. So it doesn't end. It's not just because you're young. And I believe that you're really on the right track with an important message for American physicians to stop and become a little closer to your patients. I mean, you don't need to be the richest guy in the cemetery at the end of your practice, but it's nice to have touched people's lives in great ways like this. It is. It's very special. So how did this writing, this publishing, affect your practice directly? Did you, I mean, we've seen a lot of feedback on the New York Times and other bloggers who picked mm-hmm. it up. And, and by the seen... way, you're a very good writer. From okay, one writer yeah. to another, you're a very good writer. Thanks yeah. a lot. I appreciate that. And it's funny because I, you know, I majored in English in college, and I've always liked to write, but... I could never have a blog. I could never have a weekly column. I sort of have to be uh, inspired by something big to write. Uh, and this was a story I wanted to tell mostly um, uh, for him uh, to sort of, uh, because I wanted to sort of immortalize him in this way. Um, his wife is also my patient uh, and, a, and a special patient. And I, this was sort of a gift, uh, not only to him, but to her and uh, her family as well. 
Well, you know, I teach medical students here in Loyola in Chicago, and I tell uh-huh. them that basically the journey of a physician is really learning about yourself. And you learn about yourself when you learn about your patients, and you develop this sense of intimacy, which I say, and they always laugh. I go, no, I don't mean you sleep with your patients. I mean, the word intimacy I write is three words, into me see, because when you open up to another person, they open up to you, you share that common human bond, and I think that makes for a better doctor. You can pass that one around, Dr. Gordon. I absolutely could not agree with you more, and I like that. You've got to look at yourself to really be intimate with somebody. Absolutely. So do you teach students? I do. I teach residents and students. I was a chief resident when I was done with my uh, my medicine residency. So. And what do you teach them about the professional barrier now? Um, that's a great question. I try to teach them to uh, relax a little bit. Uh, you don't have to stand up on the mountaintop and look down at your patients and create this sort of hierarchy where uh, I tell you what to do. Uh, I get to know you, but you don't get to know me. Uh, you're allowed to joke with patients. Uh, you're allowed to really probe. Uh, you're allowed to let them see that you are just a regular person. And uh, usually when you do that, they really trust you more. Yeah, I always notice patients when I have a cold or something, they're really amazed. They go, doctors aren't supposed to have colds. I go, <laughs> yeah, well, guess what? You know, we get dressed the same way you do. And we're, right. we were human beings before we were doctors and mm-hmm. still are. We're touching a lot more dirty hands, too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. But what about, um, you know, we talk about elements of things that you allot with your patients. What about admitting fault? I mean, that's something that a lot of doctors are very, very, very hesitant, very defensive about when it comes to letting patients in. If something goes wrong, a mistake happens, is that something that has influenced you in any way in terms of your relationships with your patients? Have, have yeah. you taken a different stance on that? I mean, I think it's, I think it's very hard to admit fault, but, uh, but uh, it, usually honesty is really the best policy, and especially when you do it quickly sort of, uh, you know, I really shouldn't have given you that medicine that uh, gave you kidney failure. Uh, I didn't notice that your, uh, your kidneys weren't normal, and I'm, I'm really sorry. I'm glad everything has turned out well. It uh, usually goes a long way, and patients really don't, don't fault you uh, once you've sort of admitted that. Um, if you try to hide things, uh, uh, that's when you get into trouble. I've taught this to my students, too. I go, if you're honest with patients and treat them like family, they'll love you even when you mess up that's if you exactly tell them the right. truth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what kind of uh, feedback did you get? We know that you got a ton of positive feedback. Were there any detractors, anyone who said, I don't agree with that at all? Um, Not really. I got a couple of of interesting emails. One was, you know, why is a guy with uh, stable coronary disease uh, seeing a cardiologist? Uh, That was one. Uh, I love those answers. And the other one was from from a psychiatrist who asked me uh, if there was perhaps anything deeper than just a uh, mutual admiration and platonic friendship here. uh, quite frankly, he asked, uh, you know, was there any was there any sort of sexual feelings on either of your parts? And uh, I, I pretty much, I, you know, I laughed. I dismissed yeah. that, of course. As a writer, I love to get those kind of letters. You look at those; those are the most fun ones to get. Right. You know, it's nice. A lot of the letters I got were from older doctors. You know, guys who were sort of on the cusp of retiring or uh, already had retired who have seen so many changes happen in the medical profession and uh, almost have lost a lot of faith in in the younger docs and they were they were they were really happy that that you know the the old patient doctor relationship the closeness to patients um could still exist in, in today's medical environment no i'm delighted with your article as a guy who has a vision of trying to bring some care back to healthcare i think you need to speak more and write more and talk more about this issue with 
doctors and remind them why we became doctors, to be there for patients, not for ourselves. Exactly. And Dr. Gordon, this is coming from somebody who's written a ton himself about that very issue. So oh, great. It's very good advice that you're hearing here. That's great. <laughs> I've, Thank you. I've written three pages or so. <laughs> <laughs> Plus maybe 800, maybe. <laughs> All right. Well, anything else you want to say to, to you've got the audience here, is it, you want to give a message to our listeners? No, just, just uh, try to be yourself with patients, try to be honest, and try to uh, uh, allow them to let, get to know you uh, a little bit more. Uh, and trust me, they'll trust you uh, more, uh, most importantly, when it counts. Um, as Mr. M, unfortunately, uh, at the end of the article I talk about, uh, Mr. M uh, passed away after a, a, a short illness. Um, and uh, there were, he was very touched uh, to have me there in the hospital, and the family obviously was uh, really leaned on me in those last couple tough weeks, um, and I was invited to sit with the family at the funeral, which meant the world to me. Uh, it was actually snowing in Philadelphia, and there were about two feet of snow on the ground. There was ice on the road, and uh, I ventured out, and I, I wouldn't have missed that for the world. Yep. I think to sum it up, it's not what you do for patients. It's who you are, and thank you for joining us. Oh, it was great to be on. Thanks so much. Our guest today has been Dr. Ram Gordon, cardiologist at Chestnut Hill Cardiology in Flowertown, Pennsylvania. We've been talking to him about the doctor-patient relationship. You can read about the relationship he shared with us here today in the May 12th issue of JAMA. And we really appreciate him being here today. And thank you. Thanks, guys. Outstanding, Scott. I loved it. This is right up my alley. Medicine, communication. I get really close to patients. I mean, one of my favorite, one of my most memorable encounters was, and as a dermatologist, was a patient who was dying and, and on chemotherapy for cancer. And I, she'd been my patient slash friend for so long, she couldn't come up to the office. She was too weak. And I went down and sat within her car for a half an hour and talked to her about her choices for chemotherapy. And she finally decided not to do anything. And she, we just said goodbye and hugged and cried. I remember that. And, and those are the precious moments of medicine, Matt. You, know, you can get the biggest paycheck in the world, but those are the things that, that at the end of the day, when you get tears in your eyes because you've had a day full of patients and it was just so enlightening and so uplifting to you, that's the real gold in medicine. And I hope we don't lose that in the new healthcare system. Yeah, you and me both. You and me mm-hmm. both, Michael. All right. So now on to the ReachMD Forum, Matt. I doubt this fact escaped your notice. But all of our listeners may not know that Friday, June 4th, was National Donut Day. Krispy Kreme customers were treated to one free donut each. Did you get your? Mm. No. It's delicious. No, I didn't get mine, and thank you for eating in front of me. But um, I'm not going to lie here, Michael. (laughs) I am shocked, and I am horrified to have missed Donut Day. Well, then you're in luck because it brought you one. Actually, two. But... For each of us, but I'm thinking of keeping three. These are pretty good. <laughs> Sweet. Nice donut day. I mean, it just sugar. became donut week for me. Thank you kindly. Well, here. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll have one with you. In fact, you can have another. Nice. Let's have two each for our freedom. All right. Well, I'm already finished with round one. What do you mean my, for my freedom? Well, a group called the Competitive Enterprise Institute issued a press release last week urging Americans to celebrate National Donut Day. Hooray! With a donut. And then a second one is an act of civil disobedience. Here I go being... (laughs) Mr. President, here I go. Mm. (laughs) So you're saying that my eating this second mound of gut-busting sugar in front of me is a protest now. 
I mean, can't I just feel guilty for killing my diet? I mean, what's their agenda? Yeah, these are a point and a half a piece on Weight Watchers. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and I'm blowing my diet. For this show, the Competitive Enterprise Institute is a libertarian group that wants the government out of food regulation. They don't like the White House running task forces on childhood obesity. They don't want nutrition labels posted in restaurants or manufactured to be pressured to lower sodium or ban trans fat. Mm. So they're at the deep end of the pool, actually. But there is something to be said for letting people make their own health decisions. I don't agree. I think that if we're really worried about health care spending, it's our obese Americans are going to trash the system. So let me have another bite of donut while I earn. <laughs> yeah, enjoy it while you can because mm. it's carrots from here on out. And, but I have to say, I mean, public pressure clearly changes behavior. I mean, look at what's happening with smoking. I mean, if it isn't the role of the government to protect the public, why have the FDA or have any standards at all? Well, the government does pay for a lot of our health care, and I think we need standards. Listen, I, I think it makes great sense when you walk around and look at how fat we are in America to have calories and sugar and you know whatever else listed for foods that we eat because people don't realize that when you go in and eat one of those huge hamburgers, how many calories and how many yeah. grams of fat you're eating, they're, they're unaware of it. Yeah. We need to make them aware. I think it's very important to do that. I think this uh, libertarian group, I'm sorry, I don't agree with them at all. Yeah. I, I think it is our right to eat what we want, but it's also our right to be informed. Exactly. Exactly. And what doctor is not going to say that information is power? You know? Exactly. I mean, that's, we should at least have the information. That's my take on it. Yep. Well, I can say this, Michael. Welcome or not, government intervention in our health is nothing new, and last week's testament to that fact was a mock public service announcement on germs by the venerable Dr. Weird Al Yankovic. He eats donuts, too. He eats many donuts. And if you watch the video on YouTube, you'll see that it's a mashup of old PSA footage, and there are some great gems in there. So today, for you, our listeners, we offer another useful clip about germs and you. Roll it, Tony. Whenever possible, have your dinner prepared inside a hyperbaric chamber. Rinse your mouth with hydrochloric acid after every meal. And if all else fails, run. Run for your lives before the germs get you too. <laughs> Couldn't agree with that more. <laughs> and I think that's going to do it for us today on Second Opinion Live. Run, run for your lives. Until next time, I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. And for more about Second Opinion Live on ReachMD, where the D stands for donuts, mm. run, run to our website at reachmd.com slash SOL. And give us a shout on Twitter and on Facebook. You can also follow us on your iPhone and your new iPhone when you get it. Until next time, I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg. Thank you for joining us. Keep your radio dialed into ReachMDXM160. And keep those donuts going, everybody. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. Oh,